90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm ready for a Thanksgiving break. How about you? <laughs> oh, the same. You know, we don't we don't get the break, but Oh, you get some of a break, right? You're not going to let those poor guys work this whole week. Well, we don't work Thanksgiving Day. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> now, I do think that uh I think I will be the only one there Friday, which is Fine. Yes, yes. Because uh, most people are traveling. <laughs> yes, it is fine. That is, I'm going to come and protect those guys. Um, <laughs> I'm taking the whole no, week it, off because, you know, I'm an academic, so. <laughs> yeah, I know. Job is a, job is a generous <laughs> term for you sometimes. So true. <laughs> so true. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, both of my kids have all week off. Like, I don't yeah, remember that growing up. <laughs> No, I mean, we maybe got a half day the day before. Maybe. Like, we never had half days, so I'm pretty sure we just got Thursday and Friday off. Kids yeah. these days. <laughs> yeah, so they both have all week off. Mm -hmm. And so, consequently, I'm taking all week off. <laughs> so, yeah, headed to Iowa where it'll be nice and, you know, frozen. So, that's fun. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'm staying right here. Yeah, I I yeah. heard that and making your poor dudes work all week. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I was actually over in your neck of the woods uh, earlier this week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, didn't even see you. Yeah, I know. And I, I ended up uh, driving. I was going to fly over there, but the uh, evening I was going to go, <laughs> I would have had a 50-knot headwind. It would have been just as slow to fly as it was to drive. <laughs> I assumed that is why you wound up driving. I also went to Whataburger to look for you, but I didn't see you. <laughs> I, I was not there. I was at the Cheesecake Factory. Oh, okay. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> we have Whataburger in Arkansas now. It's not quite the delicacy oh. it used to be. You do? How exciting is that? Wow. I had no idea they'd left the confines of the Texahoma region. <laughs> yeah, no, we have we have Whataburger here. We have Kane's Chicken here. Oh, my goodness. Well, why are you even going to come back over here now, man? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Ray's Barbecue, that's why. Ray's Barbecue is a solid choice. Mm -hmm. uh, not sponsored, but interested would, would welcome it <laughs> right <laughs> if you want me to eat those french fries on the air all day that's fine <laughs> oh, i haven't even had the french fries okay so i haven't either i threw that out there to as a teaser to see if you had um so Herr engel one of our esteemed professors came in the other day and he was like Hey, Doolin, like he always does. And he was like, have you had those French fries at Ray's? I'm like, no, why would I buy French fries at a barbecue joint? He said, I could eat those all day, every day. Interesting. I know. So guess what I'm going to have for lunch tomorrow? <laughs> I eagerly await your report. Mm, I will eagerly provide it. And if you need me to go twice just to, you know, up my sampling points. I can do so. <laughs> I mean, to get a statistically significant sample, it might take all semester. It might. I get, oh gosh, it's hard work, but somebody's got to do that research. 
<laughs> yes. And that could be somebody that has no job. <laughs> oh, thanks, OU, for paying me. Um, <laughs> hey, you know, it's been a – I haven't complained about grading or anything because I was supposed to be drilling a well this semester, um, which was going to take a lot of time. So I planned ahead, and I only taught one class – and it'll be great. So that's been great, even though my well got canceled. <laughs> so, right. You know, I'll be drilling it in February when I'm teaching three classes, but that's okay. <laughs> sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no big deal. So I've got plenty of time for race. That was the whole point of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, now yeah. we've caught you up on our uh, our food <laughs> adventures. <laughs> I feel like that was even a short time for how much we generally talk about food, but okay. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. So I thought we'd talk, do something different. We're going to have a not fun paper and a fun paper this week. (laughs) Right. Um, I would say this is a fun paper though. I'll say the not fun paper is still quite interesting. Yes. Because it's. It's more of a in-depth discussion on the science of this paper and then a fun paper. Right. Because the fun paper itself is, I'm going to say, the second shortest fun paper we've ever done. <laughs> Next to that one that didn't have any text. <laughs> Next to the one that was just, no. <laughs> oh, man. Didn't we have one that was all, like, chicken? Like I said, bark, Yeah, chicken bark. at all. Chicken, 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 chicken. <laughs> yeah. Which, uh, funny enough, is very related to this week's fun paper. <laughs> I feel like all the best fun papers are chicken related. Um, but I digress. This is, I mean, this, the other paper is kind of like you could use it to cook chicken, right? Right. <laughs> so we talk a lot on here about bowl lights because I think they're cool. You think they're cool. I did research on them. Like, they're cool. Who doesn't like huge explosions in the sky? (laughs) Right. And they also make really, really cool geologic features like craters and shatter cones and all this other fun stuff. Yeah. Tectites, micro tectites, all that jazz. And just to remind everyone who haven't listened to our 10 other shows about this. (laughs) I said bolides instead of asteroids or meteorites because when you don't know what made the crater, you call it a bolide because it could be a meteorite or it could be a comet. So if it's a meteorite, you've got to find the meteorite. Or if it's a comet, it's mostly ice, so you're probably not going to find a lot of that. But that's what's really interesting about what we're going to talk about today. And this just came out in geology, and it was covered by CNN. Like, lots of people have covered this paper. And so it's about widespread glasses generated by cometary fireballs during the late Pleistocene in the Atacama Desert, Chile. And this is by uh, Peter Schultz et al. Now, before we dive too deep into the paper, have you ever wondered why some papers just, I mean, they could have very profound results, but they get published and read and talked about it within that community. And some papers get picked up by CNN. Um, I, when I looked up this paper, there were so many of those. And I wondered if it was because Brown University, where Peter Schultz is, really like hyped this paper. I don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know because I so a paper that I wrote a long time ago got not nearly that much press attention, but some. Uh, there was an article in New Scientist and some other stuff about it, and it seemed like when one person found it interesting and anything hit the wire, everybody else suddenly didn't want to miss out on something. And so you got a bunch of interview requests, but I've always wondered what makes a journalist be like, yeah, this is the one that I'm going to write about today. I know. I mean, our normal places of looking, you know, as annoying as all the ads are, you know, live science or science direct, which the ads are out of control on those pages. Um, those don't surprise me. So this just came out. Um, online November 2nd and all these online associated things were November 1st or 3rd and that CNN one too. And I did and like Brown university put out like a couple of press releases about it, I guess. I don't know. I was third author on a geology paper this year. I didn't see CNN calling me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not to say this paper is not important. I mean, oh, it no. is, and it's very interesting, but it just makes me wonder what, what hype Why? man do you need? Yeah, no to, kidding. To do this. I also I also thought that. I mean, it's very hard to get a paper um, in geology. And maybe what's cool about this is because it's kind of a well-known geologic phenomenon, um, the, the actual rocks we're going to talk about. But the implications of how they got there is both old and new. Um yeah. yeah, so, and so without, without further digressing into yes. uh, why reporters <laughs> are interested in certain papers. Correct, yes. <laughs> yeah, th these, we don't know. <laughs> right. Uh, somebody needs to do a paper on that. Uh, <laughs> and the person say, should BS. <laughs> <laughs> That's all it'll say. BS, BS, BS. <laughs> right. Uh, so the idea here is looking at these weird glasses and geo geologic glasses are always really fascinating, but these are twisted and folded and scrunched up and mm -hmm. really weird. Yes, exactly. And so this is in the Atacama desert. And if you don't know, that's in, uh, Chile. Um, in specifically we're looking at sort of this Northern part of Chile and these big glass, like they're, Big, there's a lot of glass, which makes sense. I mean, what's glass made of? Silica, right? And so if you were to melt some sand, <laughs> you're going to get glass. And these glasses are pretty pervasive in certain parts of the Atacama Desert. Okay. Just like you said, John, glasses are really cool geologically because you have to melt stuff to make them. They're... Which Normally, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking yeah. faults. Oh. <laughs> Did you do that to trick me? <laughs> not, not everyone has bolides on the brain all the time, Shannon. Uh, you know, I said the word pseudotaculites in class today. We talked about that, so you'd be proud of me. I um, am impressed. Did you say it in jest of things that you believe are fictional or... <laughs> <laughs> Somebody said, is there like magnetic changes associated with fault rocks that get superheated? And I said, oh, yes. <laughs> Let me throw out this word. <laughs> uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I so, can't believe I didn't, uh, I didn't feel a, feel a tingle it? when somebody asked that. Yeah. 
I know. I should have, I, yeah, I should have called you immediately because I obviously said your name and associated with that too. Um, okay. Most people think about volcanoes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's probably fair. Volcanic uh-huh. glass is yeah. a pretty common phrase in, in general. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, obsidian, right? Obsidian is volcanic glass. Dragon glass, if you're a Game of Thrones fan. Uh, <laughs> so that's okay, but not for here. That's not an okay explanation for the glass that's here in the Atacama Desert. And so I don't know. I'm going to ask you this, even though you're not going to think it's as funny as I am. Is it Pika or Pika? How do you say this place name? I said Pika when I read it to myself. I did too. And we're going to go with that. <laughs> so, okay. I'm sorry. If anyone's from Chile or South America in general, and it's supposed to be Pika, I am sorry. <laughs> yes. So in Pika, which is like, it's pretty far north. I looked it up on the map and I was shocked at how far north in Chile yes. it was really. Uh huh. Yeah, I, I agreed. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think about a common desert. I normally think of, I mean, it's still northern, but not, not nearly that. Centrally-ish. Central. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I was also surprised at how far north Pika was. And I mean, it's smack in the desert. So <laughs> it's honestly as say, you know, at the high latitudes, uh. Uh, but it's, <laughs> Not <laughs> correct. <laughs> High altitudes, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so there's this strip of these glasses that's many tens of miles long. Mm-hmm. Not one continuous piece, but lots of these twisted fold things. And I loved in several of the popular articles that I saw about this, since nobody knows what 50 centimeters is. <laughs> Oh, no. They then converted that to 20 inches, but then realized that not many people have a good grasp of that even, and then decided to say it was about the size of a pizza box, because that's <laughs> what everybody knows. Oh, God, that's so embarrassing, right? <laughs> that's embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought, too. <laughs> oh, come on. 18, uh, yeah. All right. Pizza boxes right. of glass out in the desert. <laughs> yeah um and what's weird though is like because you know normally the glass it's like you pour chocolate and then it it hardens it -hmm. solidifies but this looks like you know somebody was on that uh oh not uh fortune fire what's that blown away (laughs) that that glass blowing competition like you know where they heat the glass (laughs) up and they make it just do all kinds of crazy things it looks like that because it was deformed and twisted and all kinds of stuff while it was still molten, which is a pretty small time window for most geologic processes. Right. Exa- well, exactly. I mean, molten glass has happened at the surface because, like I said, it's not volcanic or anything. Volcanic glass forms near the surface, too. But that's surface temperatures are very cold relative to molten glass, right? So it should cool down really quickly but just like you said it's these weird like double layers and and a new word that i found out which we'll get to in a minute but first we have to talk about the thing that we talk about well that when i talk about impacts is you want to know when did this happen like what age is this stuff i mean in all of geology right relative dating is easy absolute dating is very hard and there i thought the way we absolute dated this was pretty unique too um, yeah. So. Yeah. Cause you know, any, <laughs> I don't want to say any, any old geologist, but <laughs> most geologists can look at 
things like cross-cutting relationships, find some things in a strat column that's been done nearby and identify units and say, well, it happened between this and this formation. So that narrows it down to, let's say, 80,000 years. Yeah. Give or but, take 20,000 years. <laughs> right. But we need to get a little more fine-grained than that with this, also because it might not be all that old. Right. So late Pleistocene, like Pliocene, Pleistocene, recent, like that's the last era that we're talking about, unless you want to, sorry, not an era. I always get those mixed up. <laughs> Period. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's the last one, unless we're actually in the Anthropocene now, but epic. It's an epic. It's not even a period. Um, so it's really young. All right. So around, you know, the last of the glaciers, that's what we're talking about. These ages are, but how we found these ages, like, how do you, how do you figure that out? Um, most of the time, what we want to do is use some sort of isotopes. And for this case, because this stuff is young and we know it's young because the landscape of the Atacama Desert is young. So it used to be glaciated, right? And these, we have, we know this because of all the the glacial evidence left behind in the rocks. And this was still high elevation at that time. It's the same elevation as it is now, basically. And so this was sort of near glacial environments, like glacial paleo wetlands. So sometimes they were wet when the glaciers were retreating and it got a little bit warmer and then they would freeze over during the colder periods. So glacial wetlands, if you think about wetlands in high elevations today, there's a lot of grass and stuff, like maybe not a lot of trees, but there's still a lot of vegetation. That's what I mean by stuff. (laughs) Um, And because these aren't super old, we actually could use Carbon-14 dating, which you don't get to do very much with rocks. Yeah, that's something that like, anthropologists get to use, not geologists. Yes, exactly. And and what was cool, because this is a very geological thing, this is, we can't, we can't date the glass itself, really. So what we do is we date the organic matter right below the glass layer. And that led to sort of a big widespread numbers like 16 to 12,000 years ago, because, you know, those different areas, as you said, it spread over like 10 kilometers. So those different areas had different ages. But 4,000 years is nothing amongst friends in geology. (laughs) That is true. But with the use of C14 at these organic matter locations, what was really neat. Okay. So you can date that grass. It's got to be around that because it's on top of the grass, but they found burned soil that was in contact with the glass. Yeah. So what it was sitting on as it was melting, fusing and cooling. Yes. So that's even better. Like, okay, here's some grass, but here's some burned soil and we can actually do a carbon 14 date on that. So that was really neat. So it, it, we narrowed it even further from that 4,000 years to um, the maximum age of that was 12,000 actually 12,300 years before present. And then there was another location with this burnt soil that was around 11 and a half. And for those of you who are paleoclimatically bent, 11 and a half million years ago, or thousand years ago, 
not used to that number. (laughs) Such tiny numbers. (laughs) So tiny. (laughs) So 11 and a half thousand years ago was the Younger Dryas period. So this was a cold period that led to the extinction of a lot of horses and the big ground sloths and things like that. Yeah, I mean, the the megafauna extinction that happened to also be somewhat concentrated in South America. Interesting, huh? Yeah. Hmm. Coincidence, maybe, or maybe Maybe. not. (laughs) Maybe. So this paper actually doesn't address that at all, which I kind of love. It just dangles it out there, (laughs) right? (laughs) (laughs) We're not saying it, but you're all thinking it. Exactly. I was like, oh, 11 and a half, huh? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So that was really neat. I mean, that was the first cool part about this paper. Um, But this glass, so because you could see this burnt soil and it was on top of these grasslands, the old explanation for this glass, and by old, I mean like what it's like less than 10 years old. (laughs) Yeah, you know, well, well, since, yeah, well, since we were no longer in school. Yes, right, correct. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) So this these glassy slabs were sort of originally attributed back in you know the early 2010s when they were found to an impact because impacts produce glass and there's no volcanoes this isn't an active fault right there so it's not a pseudo tachylite so maybe it's impact related but there's no other impact features so the next person goes well eh, i think these are related to grass fires we've got this burnt soil this is probably glass associated with super hot grass fires. And this grass is on top of all this very clean silica sand. So it's probably grass fires. But now we come back and we have lots of evidence, which is why this is a geology paper, is because all this evidence that says, nope, you know what? It was a bolide, but it wasn't a meteorite. Yeah. And I mean, grass fires can burn very yes. hot. and dry, high-altitude desert grass fires. Yeah, that's that's definitely a thing. So not an unreasonable hypothesis at no. all. No, not at all. Not uh, at all. But, okay, so now we, we come along and test that hypothesis. And as it turns out, grass fires don't have extraterrestrial mineralogy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, alien grass fires do. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a grass fire from the crashed spaceship. We'll just go ahead and put that one out there right now. <laughs> they didn't say that, but <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely implied. So this is super cool, right? There's some awesome, you got to love these microscope images in here. Actually, I love the hand sample images in here. They're very well done. Yes. Like, uh, yeah, this is some really great photography and image acquisitions in this paper it's worth the read just for that uh and then i did notice uh, unfortunately it's so easy with papers there's always one or two things that you don't catch in the galley proofs (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) did you notice the word large starts twice in figure 2a's caption yes (laughs) large (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, but I love the picture and the feel of this because a, a imagine try to put yourself back into your intro to field days. <laughs> you walk up and look at this and you'd go, huh, basalt, 
folded basalt. Absolutely. What? <laughs> and then you would mark it down. <laughs> And uh-huh. you would get a big red circle on that part of your map. Yep, exactly. I would also have said that's folded basalt. In fact, if you had shown me A, I would have said, that's a cool picture from Mars. That's exactly. <laughs> I thought that when I saw that initially, I thought, man, we're going to go straight to comparing this to Mars. That'll be fascinating. <laughs> but it's nope. not. It's the Atacama Desert. <laughs> um, yeah, these things are beautiful. In that same, in figure two, they have um, a thin section of it, and it is so cool. So it's just this awesome green glass with all these vesicles, really hot. You can see all these inclusions of other stuff, like you said earlier, John, which we'll get to. And then in this is a new word I learned that I didn't know. And what's that? Schlieren? (laughs) Yeah. Uh-huh. Did you know this word? I'm sure you did, right? Uh, I know the word, but not in this particular context. Context. So it it is, um, <laughs> it's an optical inhomogeneity in a transparent media that can only be captured. Usually it's used in fluid dynamics when you're talking about like the density of different fluids, but it can usually only be captured if you apply some optical filter to either the camera or like the movie or, you know, because normally you wouldn't see the perturbations because whatever's being perturbated is translucent. Yeah. So like, you know, you can shine a light across the top of a razor blade under a projector screen, yada, yada. And you can get a kind of like a grayscale image of turbulence in the air. Uh, so I've seen that done for like, you, know, you can throw throw a paper airplane through the field of view and watch all the turbulence behind it. I have never seen that done. <laughs> so that's the context that I need in, which it's the same physical thing, but right. in a thin section. Yeah. Isn't that cool? So, I'm, you know, it's probably not exactly the right thing to say, even though this is glass, the, the dirtiness of the glass because of all the inclusions makes that clear. It makes it apparent <laughs> that <laughs> there we go. word choice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Phrasing um, <laughs> makes it apparent that, you know, there's, this is very bubbly and flowage is what we always call this, <laughs> but they're much more <laughs> scientific about it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Flow it, it textures. Shows that it was dynamic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there we go. It was not your regular boring sandstone. Mm-hmm. Or even your regular boring volcanic glass. And, yeah. you know, when I first saw this thin section, I was like, I'm so glad that nobody had thin sections of this when I was at OU because I could see this on a quiz. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Look at this weird olivine. What do you think of that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, so, I mean, this looks fake. It's so so green, so such a weird texture and all these inclusions. It looks fake. It does. And I think the green goes into like one of the things like you see that it's this, this green and you do think maybe olivine, which you do see in a lot of meteorites, but this is, you know, a glass, not a crystal. Yeah. I mean, iron magnesium that you basically got what you need to make olivine, but yeah, not what it is. <laughs> this is this is amorphous. <laughs> yes. Um, so I was really shocked at 
it said that they have examined 70 thin sections and they contain literally thousands of exotic mineral grains and rock fragments. Yeah. So 10 minimum to over a hundred of these mm-hmm. per section that are atypical of local sediments. So it's not like it's just picking up some random feldspars. It's your, it's cosmic man. <laughs> yeah. And here's, we get into all the weird stuff that you never see. Bushwell diet. <laughs> yeah. Chlorapatite. Um, my favorite Cubanite, And then this weird Troy light stuff. And uh, I was very Core excited. Appetite. Yeah. Yeah. Just, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, perovskite. That's a fun one to say. And corundum. Like, uh, corundum's real hard to break down. So maybe you see that in sands, but it'd be weird. <laughs> and perovskite. Yeah. yeah you're not going to see that hanging out in these just nice, clean, silica rich sands. Um, it's got this cool pyrotite. So obviously, I love pyrotite because that's a. Iron oxide, um, and then there's some weird zircon stuff going on, which is really funny because I had a conversation today about badeliite, and here it is in this paper. <laughs> yeah, so they did some backscattered electromicroscopy on the zircons in here, mm-hmm. and they are decomposing. Yeah. Now we see zircons. From like the beginning of Earth. (laughs) (laughs) These are not decomposing because they're not stable in these pressure temperature conditions. Uh They're decomposing because they reached over 1,670 degrees Celsius and then were quenched. (laughs) Hot. That's hot. That is quite (laughs) toasty. Uh-huh. Yeah, so the presence of these, once again, zircons to the rescue for delivering some very important information about a rock. Yeah. How are you going to get that hot, man? You've got to... Yeah. Yeah. Not a fire. Not a fire. No, you're riding a comet. Um, so this stuff is really cool. This bedeliite and these weird, you know, which is zirconium oxide. It's... And they've got like the cores of the zircon being broken down into this. So neat. These pictures on here. And even some of them with like silica inclusions within them, which is weird. If you took away all of the scale bars and labels on these, mm-hmm. especially <laughs> panel C yes, and panel B, and said, what is this? I would say I was looking at some sort of cellular yeah. picture. Mm-hmm. They look like bacterial chains or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're like quartz. And <laughs> like right. that's, that's, that's not what it is. <laughs> this is not something that you normally ever see. No, it's some weird thermal decomposition. <laughs> uh, so there's all this weird stuff. Okay. Well, do you see this weird stuff in meteorites too? Not this weird stuff. No. <laughs> Right. You see different weird stuff. Correct. Uh, (laughs) Exactly. Um, So that's the first indication that maybe this isn't a meteorite. And so what's the other bolide that we have? We have, you know, comets. Okay. That's pretty cool. 
So the mineralogy suggests that maybe it's a comet. But I thought it was really neat too, which I figured you would like as well, is like how you generate the glass from a comet. Yeah, I mean, so everybody would expect when you get something cruising into the atmosphere real fast, it gets hot. We've talked about in that mm-hmm. rather gruesome paper <laughs> years ago That's about the animals favorite. turning inside out. That's my favorite paper ever. <laughs> <laughs> right. I assigned that this semester. It's so good. <laughs> Yeah, about the temperatures that can be generated from just the friction with the atmosphere. And then you get this explosion uh, because of the rapid thermal changes at the surface versus the core. This thing explodes into a bunch of fragments. But thanks to some really back of the envelope calculations. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You can say, well, yeah, look, here's here's the rough thermal conductivity of the sand out here. Uh, if it was just radiation, you'd get a skin depth of a few millimeters. Which is not what that picture that folded basalt looks like. <laughs> no, that's a skin depth of many centimeters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And then you start thinking about, well, what do time constants look like in heat transfer? Well, they're these sort of square rooty things because it's a differential equation that we're solving. And yada, yeah, okay, well, let's, let's go with square rooty thing. That's good enough for geology. That's right. <laughs> we need to either drastically increase the temperature, which is not going to happen. Yeah. Like too many exponential times what it was. Mm-hmm. Or we need to increase the exposure time to that heat. Right. So how can we do that? How not- can we make the comet hotter longer when it's cruising at tens of thousands of miles an hour. I mean, it's not a volcano. So, I mean, how do you do that? Well, our other answer is the sun, but that one doesn't work either. No, correct. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's not volcanoes. It's not the sun. That means we have to do science. Uh, Uh, (laughs) PV equals. (laughs) Yeah. And it turns out that convective action just like in your convection oven, can cook the rock longer and hotter and more thoroughly, just like, you know, baking a cake in your conventional oven, which is radiation, versus your convection oven, which forces the air, hot air in contact. This is so cool. Like, you boil the surface with wind. (laughs) Yeah, so when a comet is coming in or any bolide, It's going much faster than the speed of sound, Mm -hmm. which results in shock waves and supersonic winds arriving at the surface. Yeah. And so that causes that vortices right at the ground. And because you're hitting in this, I mean, it was a wetland at the time, but it was still, you know, glacial periods are dusty. There was still a lot of sediment everywhere, right? And so you've got all that radiation and you start convecting the surface, further melting, and those little melt packets come together in these globs, and you create these cool textures that you see in these glasses, these flow textures with all their little vesicles, which is, you know, the little quenched parts, leaving bubbles behind, and all the inclusions, like that piece of sand that was inside that zirconium oxide. 
So supersonic blowing molten sand getting quenched on cold sand that's getting exposed as this blows up into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Next time Gary McManus talks about a heat burst (laughs) in Oklahoma, I'm just going to send him this paper. (laughs) You want to talk about a heat burst? Remember that one 11 and a half thousand years ago? Exactly. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I mean, this is... Again, the the physics don't change, just the time scale, and in this mm-hmm. case, the yep. energy scale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, so we always cool. talk about how many you know, thunderstorms release the equivalent of so many nuclear weapons every <laughs> hour. Uh, yeah, let's talk about comets and meteors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big time. This stuff is so cool. So cool. Um, I was very excited about this paper, but... I got more excited the more I read it, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Because um, mm-hmm. at first, I've got to admit, when you first sent it to me, I was like, okay, this sounds kind of cool. And then I started reading about like isotope dating, and I was kind of like, okay, losing interest here. <laughs> and <laughs> I knew you were going to gloss over that whole paleoclimate first part. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got to the photomicrographs and the photos of the rock and was instantly back in. <laughs> I think that that um, this like the dynamics of how this happened at the end. I I was like when I got to that part, I was like, "Yep, John's gonna love this part." So, <laughs> well, and just like the little, I mean, these authors, you know, people after my own heart with a a very quick calculation based in understanding the physics, being able to say like, definitely wasn't this. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's really. And very eloquently put as well. And and so this is what the cool thing about this is. And they give credit to this. Like there was already a commentary derivation of these glasses that was put out into the literature. It just couldn't really be proven. And so they've proved it. And what's so cool about it is that most bolide impacts are meteorites. Even though the frequency that comets come in and these airbursts happen is probably high. We just don't see the geologic evidence for it like we do a big smoking hole in the ground. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so like that's what's super cool about these about this specific um bolide impact. And it's really and, young, you know. Well, and I do want to go read a paper by the same author from the early 90s now about airburst scours on Venus. Mm. Yes. That caught my attention immediately. Also have that starred for myself. <laughs> Correct. I'll send it to you when I get off of here. <laughs> yes. Us, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, us slobs out here that don't have access to all these journals. <laughs> uh, yeah, suckers. We'll have a whole, we can talk about, well, anyway, that's a whole nother 12 shows. About open access journals. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, So the first acknowledgement from this is from the Bevan and Mary Hill French Fund for Terrestrial Meteorite Impact Research at Brown. And Bevan French wrote this treatise that he made fully available. It's a book about meteorite impacts. And he came to my poster in at the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference and complimented my research and I wanted to cry because he was such a nice guy and I was so starstruck and he was just 
yeah, an amazing researcher. So yeah, that was the first person that they, or the first acknowledgement in this paper. And it was really cool. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So this was very neat. It was well-deserved of all the press attention that it got, I thought. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I hope that our next paper also got a lot of press attention when it came out. Which means it's time for everybody's <laughs> favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> yes, I, this paper, if it came out today, would have press attention in the good and the bad and the PETA way. Oh, definitely in the PETA way. It's such a short paper, but there's so much to say. <laughs> yes. Right? Like, there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> a single author paper, again, not common anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this yeah. is from 1975, and it starts talking about studies that were conducted long before 1975. <laughs> yeah, long like before. 1842. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, very much so. And the title is Chicken Plucking as Measure of Tornado Wind Speed by Vonnegut. <laughs> and yes, that is Kurt Vonnegut's brother, the scientist. So there you go. <laughs> also, fun connection. Exactly. exactly. He did so much cool stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is awesome. I'll, okay, so just the title alone. Okay, Interesting. So you got all these naked chickens walking around after a tornado or not walking as the case may be. <laughs> and so maybe you could use the amount of feathers that blow off as a proxy for wind speed in a tornado. I mean, it's no more unreasonable than the Oklahoma tornado rock. Uh, exactly right. Um, <laughs> you know, if it's gone, it's windy. Um, yeah. This experiment by Elias Loomis in 1842... <laughs> he says you know lots of chickens are walking around without their feathers so what is that velocity needed to basically totally strip a chicken of its feathers and this is not just like some (laughs) random elias person standing around this is professor loomis (laughs) exactly he made a chicken gun (laughs) and (laughs) shot a six pound chicken out of it, loaded with five ounces of powder. <laughs> um, yeah, and deci- the chicken was already dead. <laughs> it okay. was, but I love the sentence. The feathers rose 20 or 30 feet and were scattered by the wind. Oh, my God. Upon examination, they were found to be pulled out clean, the skin seldom adhering to them. <laughs> the body was turned torn into small fragments, only a part of which could be found. <laughs> the velocity was 341 miles per hour, which I want to know in 1847, how do you get a 0.3% measurement Amazing. of Amazing. speed? <laughs> I knew you were going to latch onto that bad boy. It's, <laughs> it's got to be timing. Yeah. Like from the time it was fired to the time it hit the ground, assuming some drag. <laughs> some drag. <laughs> oh man! I mean, you it's did a spherical its... chicken. I mean, <laughs> don't they say? Yeah. Yes. Um, they say a ball. A ball. Yeah. A ball of chicken. A... Yeah. So it is a spherical chicken. We can approximate that. We're we're physicists here. <laughs> oh my! 
<laughs> I mean, it did increase its surface area once it came out of that gun, though. <laughs> yes, it did. <laughs> oh, my God. This is amazing. <laughs> uh, it says... Um, it says a foul forced through the air with this velocity is torn entirely to pieces with a less velocity. It is probable most of the feathers might be pulled without mutilating the body. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. So (laughs) Dr. Vonnegut goes on to say, well, I mean, you blew him out of a gun. How much is that really like a tornado? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So it says you could use like a wind tunnel or a shock tube and the difficulties associated with accelerating the bird to a tornado speed can be obviated. (laughs) I love that sentence. Right. Oh my gosh. Um (laughs) But then they he points out, well, you know, Birds are in different stages of life, different stages of development, different molts. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, because it, if you go to try to pull a chicken feather, it's not exactly easy to pull out, right? But but it's going I, to be highly variable depending on where that chicken is and its life cycle, right? So this is really interesting, and I learned this from this paper. There's this thing called flight molt, which is like analogous to me to a lizard dropping its tail. And letting it wobble around on the ground, you know? Uh, <laughs> and so it said that, like, they can relax the little bird, the the hair follicles, so that their feathers can be plucked out easier when they're startled. So there's some kind of hormonal response, stress response, that relaxes their follicles. So if something tries to chomp down on them, they just get feathers instead of actual bird. And so would that happen if there's a tornado coming? Would the chickens sense that? So how can you actually relate that to feathers coming out, you know, versus like normal amount of pressure force to take a feather off? And if you want to know more about follicle (laughs) relaxation, uh, pain 1972 mechanisms and control of molt. Mm -hmm. Very, that was very interesting. Yeah. So it says without conducting further experiments, this is probably not indicative of wind speed. (laughs) Well, no, it's not indicative of winds as intense as might be first supposed. (laughs) All these like 400 mile an hour tornadoes going out there, (laughs) plucking these chickens. (laughs) I was trying to come up with a really good name instead of like the, the Fujita scale, the EF scale. <laughs> oh, man. The yeah. Fujita scale? The f- yeah. <laughs> Gosh. I've had that answered on tests so many times that it's almost not funny. But <laughs> um, I have a pre-test, and it says, who's Ted Fujita? And my favorite answer was... He's that dude that owns that Mexican restaurant down the street. Amazing tacos. Oh, Ted's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was good. <laughs> um, I gave know, that kid that. full credit. <laughs> or I see like uh, on the evening news, the tornado in Oklahoma City today was three out of five feathers. <laughs> I, I can see a pretty awesome scale there. A hundred percent. Definitely with some clucking involved with that little <laughs> flip art chicken. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, I'm going to make that. <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Vonnegut, your your work 
in investigating Professor Loomis's experiment is much appreciated. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wish we had more information on Elias's experiment. Oh, yeah. You better believe I'm going to try to find this. <laughs> like, uh, I, I, w- I would like to see the figure in the method section about the chicken gun. <laughs> All my favorite figures from fun papers are chicken related. <laughs> As... As some people that listen know, uh, I have built various pneumatic, large pneumatic guns <laughs> for various purposes over the years. Uh, so now I'm I'm very curious what this chicken gun looked like. Oh, are you? Or are we just going to approximate a ball of chicken? <laughs> or maybe we need to try to reproduce it. Amen. Amen to that. High speed photography all over this one. Exactly. As long as there's lasers, it's got to be science. Did you say exactly? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. Uh, We better end this. (laughs) We better end this, indeed. So if you have any experience with the amount of chicken feathers that you find based on wind speed, and we're not picky, it doesn't have to be tornadoes, we'll take straight line microbursts, any other event. Uh, Or you would like to submit your drawings for the candidate Don't Panic Geocast chicken gun. (laughs) Who says chickens can't fly. Oh, We would love to see those mechanical drawings along with an FEM analysis of the hoop stresses on the board. So we're ensured that it is safe. Shannon, how can folks send that in? They can't. Please don't. Uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter. Seems like a great place to mine Twitter for these things. At don'tpanicgeo. I am at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Um, you can come on the Slack chat room. I'm sure we can get this bad boy designed and 3D printed immediately. We're in the software underground, the Don't Panic channel. Thank you to our Patreon supporters for supporting this great empirical research. Patreon.com slash don't panic geo. And until next week, remember, especially when it comes to chickens, <laughs> don't panic. It's definitely not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.